Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is September the 3rd in 2022, and my guest is Michael Gibson. Michael is the co-founder and general partner at 1517, an investment firm that backs dropouts, renegade students, and deep tech scientists at the earliest stages. Michael is also the author of an upcoming book, Paper Belt on Fire, The Fight for Progress in an Age of Ashes, coming out on November 8, 2022. Today, we're talking all about why Michael shorts the higher education bubble, alternative paths to education, and financing the next generation of dropout innovators and self-learners. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nicholas. Happy to be here. Michael, what would you like the audience to know about you? You covered a lot in that intro, so that's very helpful. I usually start with the point that I have no business being in the business that I'm in. You look at venture capital and a lot of the people who run VC funds are typically former entrepreneurs who had some large exit, or maybe they're still around from the 1970s and 80s and they just keep winning. So they're, they're still on Sand Hill Road now. Or maybe someone took a traditional path, maybe Stanford Business School and spent some time at a company and then switched sides to the VC side. So like me and my co-founder, we don't fit that description at all. I thought I was going to become a philosophy professor. I dropped out of my PhD program and became a journalist for a short time. I met Peter Thiel, the, one of the co-founders of PayPal and first outside investor of Facebook and so on. And that was in 2010. He hired me to work on his hedge fund. I show up to work the first day and the night before he came up with this idea, take people in college, $100,000 for two years to leave school and work on science and technology. So that was my first day of work. We launched this program, ended up being 20 people per year. I got pulled into that and co-ran that program for five years. My current co-founder at 1517 is Danielle Strackman. She was brought on early in that first month as well at the Teal Fellowship, and she was the director of that program as well. So yeah, we worked together for five years, and we saw so many interesting things come out of it that we decided to start a fund together in 2015. And probably the most famous thing to come out of the program is that we helped Vitalik Buterin launched Ethereum in 2013. So that was pretty exciting. Danielle is a charter school founder and principal. So between the school principal and the dropout academic philosopher, I'd say we have pretty unusual background when it comes to, to venture capital and what we do. That's fascinating. How did Peter Thiel find you? Two things stand out for me is one, if you read the history of PayPal, 
And there's a great book called The Founders by Jimmy Sony. It's quite good. Peter really overvalued, not overvalues, but he puts a huge premium on creativity and intelligence and puts a low value on experience. So if you read PayPal's history, it's like they're hiring people with no experience in banking or payments. They just had to learn on the fly. And in retrospect, they said that was necessary because if they knew anything about the space, they never would have started the company. So I think Peter sees great value in fresh thinking on old problems. Maybe I fit that description a little bit. The other thing Peter does quite a bit in terms of talent spotting is he loves creating sort of honeypots of eccentrics. And you can see this sometimes in the things he funds, the philanthropy he funds. So I had become involved with the Seasteading Institute at its inception. The Seasteading Institute is this organization that is devoted to promoting new cities on the water. So the technology is nowhere near there today. So it's more about incremental steps. But this idea that maybe we could create more land was a science fiction vision. And the founder, Patry Friedman, launched TSI with Peter's backing. So I got involved with TSI, Seasteading Institute. And, and then I was at a festival that they put on a yearly party. It's called Ephemeral up in the Sacramento River Delta. A lot of boats and platforms on the water. And I met these uh, two guys who worked for Peter's Hedge Fund, and they said they had an opening for a researcher writer. And then I went through a couple interviews, and then I ended up in a room with Peter. We just got along. We basically talked philosophy for an hour. Peter's a sort of student acolyte of the French literary theorist, anthropologist René Girard, and we connected on a lot of his work. And so Peter hired me. Pretty unlikely series of events, but I think it fits that pattern of the way Peter looks for talent. And so he, if you're interested in some eccentric, weird th niche thing, and you are capable in different ways, I think that is a valuable way to find talent out in the world. It also reminds me a bit of my own path in some ways. Like I was also close to starting a PhD program. I also did philosophy oh, wow. and economics. It would have been more in the empirical social sciences. But fortunately, I had a very good professor who's still a mentor to that day. She's worked at McKinsey mm -hmm. before. So she's seen something different. And she told me, Nicholas, if you don't find a job, you can do your PhD with me. But you shouldn't do it. You're too entrepreneurial. You should go to the private sector. <laughs> This is how I ended up working for startups instead and learning about entrepreneurship and eventually rising in one very fast growing startup and then doing my own then thing. I think professions draw certain types of people and academia isn't for everyone. And then on the other hand, I don't think professors make the best entrepreneurs either. Yeah, which is why I was so curious about that choice, because many people who do their PhD or are researchers, they, they don't have... They're not entrepreneurs, yeah. but you are. Well, clearly. yeah. So I'm an entrepreneur in the sense I started a fund and, and now we're, we've been in business for seven years. And in that sense, I feel like an entrepreneur, but it's not, I haven't started a tech startup company and taken that someplace. And I feel that the amount of courage and dedication it takes to start something new and get it going off the ground is of a whole order of magnitude different from, I think, a fund. So I can't claim the full mantle in some ways. But but yeah, it's also something I had to learn my way into and get the vibe for. I remember actually, so I mentioned I was a journalist. I worked for MIT's Technology Review. I covered all sorts of different things for them. One of the stories I had to write once was an interview with Max Levchin, the CTO of PayPal. And this was in 2007. So it had been five years since they had sold PayPal to eBay. And I got on the phone with Max and I asked him, if there was, is there anything you would ask your young or tell your younger self to do differently? 
And he said, and this is what shocked me. He said, I, when we, he said, when we sold PayPal to eBay, I took a year off. I traveled the world and it was the worst year of my life. And I was like, what? He's, yeah, I was just on a beach consuming things, not doing much. And all my friends were back in California building these incredible companies. And I was like, who are your friends? And then that was the first time I ever heard of the PayPal mafia. So it was Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, Steve Chen, founder of YouTube, Jeremy Stoppelman, founder of Yelp. So it's like the PayPal mafia has just been this really generative creative force a network of people who are alumni of working for PayPal. And so I came out, I was like, wow, who are these people? It was like almost a real life Atlas Shrugged or something where these entrepreneurs who were forces for good and <laughs> building incredible things. I, that, I think it was a shock to me because I was used to that academic life. And the fact that this person I was talking to, their fulfillment was in building things was new to me and inspiring. So I think that I marked that as a change point in my life. Yeah, it's interesting. I... We were coming from a different culture, so we didn't even know these things were possible mm -hmm. and that these people existed, these names existed. I'm pretty sure if you'd asked me in 2015, really, I wouldn't have known mm -hmm. like the founding story of Airbnb right. or who Y Combinator is or yeah. anything like that. I didn't know how to get in at that time. That was 2007, so it took me a few years to somehow find my way to Silicon Valley. But it happened and, and it's been an incredible ride ever since. What was your own experience in school and the education system? It was a blend of, it's like when I started out in high school, I didn't really care. About, I wasn't very curious about things. I was a good student, but not an excellent one because I was bored by the material. I was the kind of person who could study for the test a couple days before and then do well. And then in college, I think I, you know, it's like in retrospect, I think I was a little too immature. It would have been nice to maybe grow up a little bit before thinking about things to study. There are these things that are so weird. It's to go to the point of imitation and admiration. It's like the, I suddenly fell in love with different writers and two stand out for me. One is the poet T.S. Eliot. And then the other is the journalist, novelist, Tom Wolfe. And what stood out for me, I remember in college is like both these guys, if you look at the back of their dust jacket on their books, there's that little inside flap with the author's picture in the biography and both of them had PhDs. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Maybe I need a PhD to be a great writer like these guys that I love. So that sort of sent me down. Then I was like, I went to grad school. So a lot of my learning though, I, even though I was in school for a long time, what I can push back on people is, Oh, you wouldn't be where you are now unless you did that. And to some extent that may be true, but I think it understates just how much self-directed learning I undertook because I felt like I was not getting what I needed in my classes. And then even after I left academia, it's I continued, like all my knowledge of economics or anything related to science and tech pretty much came after my time spent in academia. Maybe I learned how to direct my own learning just because I found the coursework so boring or irrelevant or just required. Yeah. I don't know if your experience is similar, but yeah, I just find like some courses, like there were one or two professors that were great, but then there were all these other courses I took that were like totally useless. I actually had good professors mm. and I had a good education in philosophy and economics. 
I didn't appreciate it as much. Yeah. I was, I was, especially by the economics part, mm. I was very bored and I just right. did the exams and I studied it afterwards again with textbooks wow, on okay, my own. Yeah. But already then, like most of my learning was mm. self-directed, like 80, 90% of what I learned, even at that time was from something outside of coursework, even though the coursework was sometimes yeah. very good and I should have appreciated it more in hindsight. I get that for sure. Yeah. And do you recommend studying philosophy for, or what gave, what does philosophy give you? That's a great question. I think the practice of philosophy has become dominated by a certain mode related to proof arguments. I think it, maybe this is just like the tradition stretching all the way back to this envy of mathematics where you know, there are some axioms that you start with that everyone agrees upon, and then you construct an argument that might lead to surprising conclusions. And if you accept all these premises, then you are forced to accept the conclusion. It's, find this style of arguing and debate very coercive. What is this effort to get someone to believe something else? Why are we so obsessed with convincing other people of things and that, because it always comes down to those premises and, and it turns out there's not agreement on those to begin with. The style of philosophy that I prefer is just trying to understand how things might be possible to offer explanations for what seem to be paradoxes and mysteries. I think uh, philosophy can be very good at modeling our understanding. The thought experience, experiments that are used quite widely, especially in like moral political philosophy. I think they do help us delineate and refine our intuitions on things. And then I just think that the pondering and mulling over the greatest questions of life are still worth doing, understanding what is the meaning of life? Is there a meaning to life? Where, what is the destiny of man? These types of large, big, epic questions, I think, are still fun and interesting and worth mulling over. But do they translate in any way into the work you're doing now? I don't know what came first, chicken or the egg type thing, but there is a directional orientation towards what we do. So I do think that the future could be very good for many people. And I think it's important to think about that. And for me, what is a good future? Maybe it, at a basic level, it could be bad things are happening less frequently. But on, a, on the flip side, it could be things we can't even imagine. And I think that for me, that's always been tied to liberating people from external constraints, but also internal ones as well. So philosophy has led me to think about what are those external constraints. It could be that it's the dogma and rigid structure of an old institution like the, the university. Giving people money to leave school to pursue something is a form of liberation in my mind. But then it could be internal constraints. I think we want to be, we want our lives to be self-authored, that the careers we pursue, the things we love, that they are in some sense our own and not derived by mindless imitation or manipulation or guilt or just unthinking drift. I think those, by internal constraints, I just mean these things are within us. And so philosophy, I think when I say direction, I think this push to liberation and autonomy is, is something that is in part derived from my study of philosophy, but it is part of this bigger chain to, to make the future worth it. I think the future could be an exciting place, but it also could be terrible. Every generation, I think, has its part in making sure it's the former, not the latter.
Yeah, I love that. And I agree, don't let philosophy be ruined mm. for you by academia. <laughs> I think philosophy yeah. is fantastic for the same reasons you mentioned. Both the external view, like you, you, we're talking about education, the future, institutions that are blocking us. We want to have correct right. beliefs about this because we're working with people to make bold bets and changing and creating a better future. Just the epistemology, like how do I know what I know? Thinking through those types of questions is very important when you're working on the frontier of something because it's not quite clear what we know. Exactly. And also the internally directed motivation, like when you hear, I was just reading the book, Where's My oh, Flying Car? Excellent book. And he was talking about the Machiavelli mm. effect, something I had overlooked when I read Machiavelli, but it was so insightful because he was basically saying, and that's very valuable to any entrepreneur. If you want to change the order of things, there's nothing more kind of mm. perilous and dangerous because you have the defenders of the old institutions yeah. against you. And the ones that would benefit from kind of a new order, what you want to propose, mm. they're lukewarm. Because they know the old guard has right. the laws on their side. Institutions, companies, governments. There seems to be a biological life cycle analogy. So there's a birth, there's a growth, there's a peak, flourishing, and then there's decline, degeneration, and maybe even collapse. And one of the things I like about that Machiavelli point about the old vested interests blocking the new is that it provides a mechanism that sets the course of that biological analogy. So it's like when something starts out that's new, whether it's a city or a company, the everything is so fresh. There's so much freedom in terms of what can be done, and there's no one blocking the way. But over time, it's like that starts to become rigid and ossified. And those insiders, yeah, like you're saying, there's regulatory capture, maybe laws are passed, and it prevents the introduction of the new. And I think that political economy is what drives that birth, growth, and death. It speaks to the importance, I think, of, of the frontier. I think in the past, in America, it's set up this, obviously, it's more complicated than just there being open land. But the basic drift was like, if on the East Coast, something was getting in your way, you could just go west, young man. You go somewhere else and set something up new. And you saw that in industries over and over again. One example I just recently read about was the film industry, where apparently Thomas Edison had such rigorous and tough patents on movie making that the people in New York, oh, and the labor unions controlled the city. It was to, so it was just expensive to, to make movies. So these guys were like, hey, screw this. I'm going. <laughs> they went out to Hollywood where they thought Edison wasn't paying attention. And so apparently Hollywood, is, its origins are related to this jurisdictional arbitrage <laughs> of fleeing the old order to start a new one. The hmm. American frontier closed in the 1890s. There's no more new land. So I think we need to figure out new ways of creating these opportunities. There's only so much you can reform a university or a government or a city. It's just so hard to change things once they're set in place because the old order is going to prevent it from happening. That's a broad theme I care a lot about is how do we reintroduce the frontier so that we can try new things? What is your answer? What are your thoughts well, I th on I think the or how to open it? It's really important. Prospera, I think, is a pioneering beacon in this field because it is it's a case in point of okay in two important ways there's this story about even in the united states you have a lot of closure from vested interests preventing the introduction of the new 
But in, in Honduras, you also have the situation where they just have a bad governance. Rather than trying to reform that, if you can set aside some area of land to start something new and afresh, it's like you get the best of both of those. You get something where people can try new things, inventions, companies, research programs, and then you also, hopefully for Honduras, get a way to flip the board and start new, maybe develop the country more. Yeah, I agree. And it has so much potential. Like I just uh, recorded another podcast episode. Do you know about Talent City? Yeah. Interesting stuff. I'm amazed. Like the founder of them is the founder also of mm -hmm. two tech unicorns in Africa yeah. before the age of 30. <laughs> yep. And now he set out to build these all these small Silicon Valleys all over Africa. It's mm. interesting that a lot of these charter city ideas are developing in what we call the developed world, the poor side of the globe and that creates a lot of opportunity but it also sets up a situation where if it starts going well there's this danger that the host government will start to expropriate the charter cities well, my fingers are crossed though there could be a plus side to it as well where if people aren't paying attention then maybe these city states emerge that become quite strong and wealthy and prosperous but also maybe we can see more mm. in the united states we're seeing with Balaji's the network state a couple of projects that start like in neighborhoods and buying up land one part of the network state trend i think is on point is the idea that the internet has allowed like-minded philosophically aligned people to find each other and it's like we're having this conversation in a world without the internet maybe we never meet but yeah once these groups find each other maybe they find a way to coordinate or even form bonds of mutual loyalty and cryptographic governance might allow for a real social contract among people even though they don't actually live near each other. And then, yeah, the next step, can they buy land? Can they form these little archipelago communities? I think that'll be fascinating to see. It could be, I think that is a almost, a, it's not quite charter city. Maybe it turns into that. Maybe it's a way to bootstrap a charter city. That'll be fascinating to see how that plays out. Also, with the blockchain movement, there was one key differentiator or thing that's been happening We've been talking about, oh, the problems mm. with the FDA or the education system and things like that. And we wrote writing books, there's all these critics right. and then nothing happens. And now with the blockchain movement, you have yeah. money behind that argument. Sort of the argument against the Fed and for decentralized money. It's not just critics writing books. Now there is a lot of That's money true. behind it and lots of people yeah. that are working. On Cryptocurrencies, <laughs> crypto governance, crypto universities. <laughs> What's next? One of the things that is of interest to me is the original Satoshi Nakamoto and, and then the cryptographic world in the 2000s. They had a really sharp institutional analysis about why things fail. And it touches on some of these things we talked about. One of the one of the more important ideas in, in cryptography was the trusted third parties are are so called trusted third parties are security holes. And what that meant was if there's something in the middle, it is a vulnerability and a weak point between customers or users or even just people who want to exchange goods. So it's like when, with Bitcoin, it will set out to remove that trusted third party, Fed, because the Fed, in two ways, it's like the Fed is, even though it has a stated mission, it's not very good at accomplishing that mission. And then the second thing is it's corruptible. I think that analysis is like actually really good when applied to other institutions like the university or even city hall, 
where you can see that you can measure it on two dimensions. Is it reliable and competent at its stated purpose? And two, is it susceptible to collusion of insiders against outsiders? And then cryptography can allow us to eliminate these trusted third parties. That could be interesting. So now how does that apply to education? I don't know what a decentralized education looks like outside of, hey, more self-directed learning, but it'd be interesting to see some kind of proof of learning along with proof of work kind of thing. In education, it's there's a lot to do. Can you talk a bit more about how did you develop that thesis to fund mm. the renegades? Peter Thiel, when he first started the fellowship, from his own experience, something stood out. I, he had famously backed Zuckerberg to start at the start of Facebook. And one of the things that I think stood out for Peter was that Zuckerberg was 20 when he started Facebook. And then he also knew that at PayPal, a lot of the people were younger. Some didn't have degrees like Luke Nozick. So for Peter, I think there was this way in which Silicon Valley had a meritocratic side to it where you didn't need a credential to start something. And if you were smart and creative and talented enough, it didn't matter that you were 21. So I think that sort of was the mood and the thinking behind the fellowship. And so why not, if you're wasting your time in class, why not get out there as fast as possible? So that was the start of things. And then the more I looked into it, it's like I started to uncover research. There's this guy, Benjamin Jones. He's an economist who studies innovation, science policy. And in a lot of his papers, he's just, he's found all these data sets of patent application, scientific papers, Nobel Prize winners, their biographies, and so on. And he looked at things like how old was someone when they published their first patent or paper? How old were they when they wrote the paper that then got them a Nobel Prize? How long were their careers? And what he found over the last 120 years is that in 1900, the average age at which someone published their first paper was like 23. And then the age of their greatest achievement was like 30, 31. And, and then they would, their career would last into their 50s. What we see nowadays is that the age of first invention or paper published is like 28, 29. The age of greatest achievement is like 38 or 40. And then what we don't see is an extension of the career, even though people are living longer. Scientists, on average, don't. Their productivity seems to decline in their 40s and into their 50s. So it was clear that people were just starting later. And Jones has his explanation. He says that the shoulders of giants are just higher. Okay, New Newtonian physics is difficult, but it's even... <laughs> It's, it's it, by comparison to quantum mechanics, it's very easy. And so it's just in his mind, it just takes longer and longer now for people to get to the frontier of science in some field. I disagree with that conclusion. What I saw was just massive amounts of wasted time in our school system. I think we can get people out to the frontier of science much quicker. There's so many classes that are pointless. PhDs do not need to take seven, eight years. That's largely the result of bureaucratic gunk. And requirements. I see what we do as a way to try to bring back the past in this respect is we need to get people to the edge of science quickly. We need more people working on some of these most pressing issues of the day, and they shouldn't wait till they're 30 until they're able to run that experiment they've always wanted to run. And this ties into a larger story about the rate of progress. The rate of progress has slowed down since the early 70s, and in, in order to make the sure that the future is a better place than the present. We need to find a way to jumpstart that rate of progress 
back to where it was in the early 1900s. And one way of, I think of doing that is just getting more innovators out there earlier when they might be more productive. Let's talk more about sure. that great stagnation piece. What is the great stagnation? What do we know about yeah, it? What's clear in the numbers is you could take an economic stat like total factor productivity And this is the measure of inputs to outputs. And in a broad sense, that does track technological change, because if you're getting more for less, then clearly you're making advances. And if you look at that stat, it's pretty clear that things slowed down in the early 70s. There are other indirect measures too, although it's debatable just based on like household formation and so on. It's like you look at median wages, those stagnated. So if you just take a wider step back and look at the history, what is someone like my great-grandmother was born in 1885 in Galveston, Texas. She died in 1980. Across that time, she saw the, in her own lifetime, she saw the invention of the radio, the television, the airplane, the skyscraper, rockets, computers, pretty miraculous uh, technological change. Whereas if I look at my own life, I was born in the late 70s. And there have been advances, but in, in most obviously the internet and communications. In terms of qualitative comparisons, it doesn't, you can see that the past was just like a much more rapidly advancing place. <laughs> She died and saw someone on the moon. That's crazy. So the great stagnation is this idea that something happened. We don't, the reasons why it happened are up for debate. But something happened in the early 70s where if you leave aside information, technology, and communications and focus on different sectors, energy, transportation, education, healthcare, even things like freshwater creation, we haven't been making progress at nearly the same rate as we did in the past. And then that's what feeds into these other numbers where it seems like things are declining. If you do that sector by sector analysis, it's pretty clear that's the case. You know, we, uh, if you look at energy creation, it's like we've been creating less. We, the amount of energy we consume has been going down, actually. And some environmentalists see this as a good thing. But as Jay Storrs Hall and, and Where's My Flying Car, as he makes clear, maybe it needs to be clean energy. A growing civilization is one that actually consumes more energy to do great things. Yeah, he, Jason Sahar was clearly making a, building a relationship or finding a relationship between the energy usage and the rate of progress. And it would definitely be better if that energy is clean. But something I recently found, a large part of the story, mm. I mean, one is, of course, the nuclear. So we're not allowing nuclear. Great book mm -hmm. on, on the history of nuclear and maybe its future. I think it's called The Bright Future. These two researchers, one of the things that stood out in the book for me was just how few people have died from nuclear accidents. Everyone knows Chernobyl and a couple thousand people died and it was very tragic. But what people don't focus on that story is that it was a nuclear facility in a totalitarian country. It had no containment shell, so it was poorly built and conceived. Whereas if you look at the track record outside of that, it's pretty impressive. A few people have died from nuclear accidents or radiation poisoning. And even the most famous recent examples of accidents like Fukushima, it turns out no one died. Um, that's surprising to me. It's like the people who died in Fukushima were these older people who were evacuated from the area. There's a court case where that's about oh, the really? question how many people died in Fukushima. And the court case is about okay. whether one person died or <laughs> wow, no one. Right. So if you look at like the media portrayal of that in response, it seems out of line with the facts. So nuclear is, yeah, the safest, greenest technology out there. And it's sad that 
that the environmental movement and then the people most concerned with climate change were so against it for so long. I'll have a podcast episode in a couple of weeks oh, cool. with the yeah. founder of Oklo, which is building small-scale nuclear reactors. And I haven't heard it directly from her, but from someone else who described the story. But what was interesting is, so they're trying to show the regulator a new and improved and safer design. And the regulator is coming with like a checklist. Oh, oh it doesn't God. have this safety thing for like water cooling yeah, we or don't whatever. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, it's a different design. It's safer than what you want to know, check for. Like, yeah, so exactly. it's, it's wild to me that like, like the nuclear reactors I was describing from the 60s and 70s, that's like Gen 3. And uh, those are very safe. And now we're talking about Gen 4 and Gen 5 nuclear mm. reactors. They're even safer and cleaner and so on. It's just, oh my God, why, we're so far behind when it comes to the regulations of these things. And then I haven't, didn't dig deeper into that yet, but something that I've heard multiple mm. times is even if you don't like nuclear, if you like solar or wind, what's the biggest problem <laughs> oh, there? Really? Permitting. So if... Yeah. So if you're in an African country, you have um, many oftentimes nationalized energy companies, right? Geez. So you're not even allowed to do a company in the first place. And then you have to get permits, not only in Africa, but even in Germany, mm. poster child of solar and, and renewable energy. Like you need to get wow. permits for every well, solar cell that you put on top of a, of a roof or something. I'm not exactly sure how long it takes, but it's definitely very, yeah. very painful. I have a friend who's working on that. So yeah, I think energy creation is a great case in point of stagnation. The one bright spot in, in primarily in the US was the advances made in fracking and that kind of thing, I think was important. Obviously not clean. Certainly fusion research is always important. It would have been great to have put more money into that earlier. There are things like geothermal that I think could be interesting where from the core of the earth, we could be pulling energy. Right now, geothermal plants operate in special places like near volcanoes or places where it's easier to access the, the interior of the earth. But we could invent tools and drilling just like with the fracking to get down there and, and draw energy from the earth. So I think there are lots of areas where we could be doing a lot better than we have over the last 50 years. And But for that, yeah. it needs the frontiers. It needs a way for entrepreneurs to work on these things without spending yeah, 10 no, or 15 unfortunately, years it's like with regulatory approvals. conceived right? as the most dangerous thing. So I would love Prospera to be able to allow mm. some innovation in nuclear reactor design, but I feel like Uncle Sam wouldn't like you know, a team setting up a nuclear reactor there. You, you're, you can send some <laughs> of the founders that come to you to prosper to some of these places. Yeah, yeah. Here, you can, well, cool. here you can play. Mm. Can you tell me a bit more about the founders that you look for or back? What is their typical <laughs> journey, right? Or how do they find you? What did they do before? How did right. they even get the idea? We believed in outbound. When we started the Teal Fellowship, a lot of it was inbound. Peter was so famous and the program had such notoriety that we had a strong inbound of applications and people reaching out to us. But over time, I realized I had to get out there and meet people first. Why that's the case is a couple of reasons. One is that I realized I hate applications, like a college accepting applications. The information in them is just, it's like fruit, we say. It starts off fresh and gets stale pretty fast or rotten because you meet someone, they send in an application. And then by the time you read the application, and dig into it, it's like they started a new company and now it's doing <laughs> something else. And then the other thing was that because we're with our fund, we're often the first money invested into a company, which is the riskiest point. There's so much irreducible uncertainty that the best way for us to evaluate the opportunity is to really know the team. And to know the team, we have to know their character 
can't just know that they're smart. We can't just know that they're technical. We have to know that they have the grit, the perseverance, the courage to really bring something to life. And I've found that like we can talk to people in interviews. The best way to, to get to know someone is to know them over time. So if I'm out there on the road, I travel a lot quite a bit over the year. I go to hackathons. I go to university campuses. I'm trying to meet people like a, maybe like a sports scout. I've never met one, but I imagine it's similar. I'm in West Texas. I'm looking for a linebacker. It's Friday Night Lights and I'm seeing this high school football game. I heard there's this great engineer in Tulsa and I got to meet this guy. So I'm going to have coffee with him. And yeah, we try to keep track of people over time so that when we do invest, maybe a year later or two years later, we have some sense of who they are. I mentioned some of the character traits we're looking for. We're trying to understand, can they build what they say they're going to build? But do they have the social intelligence to really, to raise money from investors, to get co-founders, hire employees, to listen to customers? It's a very tiny Venn diagram overlap of the people who are smart enough to build something new and then also emotionally aware enough to work with customers and investors and so on. So it's pretty hard to find people, especially who are ready for this kind of thing at the age of 20 or 21. It's funny because I was thinking about that as a model of t in, in venture to oh, find really? people instead of the inbound model. Yeah, and yeah, I haven't right. started with my fund yet. I'm still setting it up. But my analogy yes. was soccer. So in soccer, you do scouting. So you can't bring like great players and come <laughs> to play like in your back yeah. your stadium and observe it. You're going to them and That's observing exactly them it. in their yeah, natural environment. A, a right? soccer scout one day. I just realized how lazy Sand Hill Road was, like old school VCs. They just sat and waited for people to find them. <laughs> and maybe that worked because if you're Sequoia or <laughs> Kleiner Perkins, you're so famous, people are going to come knocking on your door. But for us starting out, that wasn't the case. It was good for us to get out there. And now I've just come to love it. It's, it's so cool to meet someone who is just starting out in life and get to know their curiosities and interests. And for me, it's a way to expose myself to what's new. I, it's fun to meet someone who's on the edge of something and they're trying to tell you about it. And I'm like, wow, I have no idea what you're talking about. This sounds cool. It's actually something with many ideas, even if they're just very crazy and out there, I feel it. It needs, or every founder needs at least one mm. second person to also believe in it. There's a video out there on YouTube, but it's like your first fan. That's the real contrary because yeah. it's like the yeah, yeah, guy yeah, dancing yeah. alone is just a weirdo. But as soon as that next person starts dancing with him, suddenly it's a thing. It really does take a team to bring an innovation to market. And part of that is the division of labor and the technical side. But the other part is just the camaraderie, the esprit de corps. There are so many ups and downs and it's so grueling. It's important to share that with, uh, with someone else. I've met some lone geniuses, but they're not able to really do great things because they're just held back because they're like, just not, they're disagreeable people. <laughs> they're not fun to be around. And that's sad in some ways because <laughs> they are so gifted, but it also helps us find people because we, we know we're looking for someone who can be a team player as well as a genius. Do you want to back people? We have different phrases for things. Sometimes we call this like acorn to oak or crawl, walk and run, where you have to get a sense of, is this someone who can direct their own learning so that they grow into the founder they have to be across these different stages. If you like starting a company when it's three to five people, that's a totally different thing from managing a company with 500 employees 
in millions of dollars of revenue in different departments and so on. I do think founder-led companies are the more creative. That's up for debate, but it is interesting and difficult to find someone who is capable of growing into those roles as they change over time. The, the past to Silicon Valley has been split on this. VC in the past used to insist that actually these had to be two different people. If you're the type of person who starts a company, maybe you should be transitioned out at some point and they bring in a seasoned CEO to take over. You saw that with Apple where Steve Jobs stepped aside for John Scully. At Google, there was Larry and Sergey. Their investors pretty much forced them to find adult supervision was the phrase. So they brought on Eric Schmidt. Elon Musk on the other side goes to show that, you know, and even Steve Jobs with Apple. It's, wow, the founder seemed to have a vision and a an ambition that just like an outside CEO doesn't have. So, man, it's hard. I don't have any good heuristics for identifying someone who can turn from an acorn into an oak tree. But I think it's important to keep that in mind when you're backing someone like, is this someone who can grow into all these different roles. How does it look like with the benefit of hindsight? Like mm. how do people like Vitalik Buterin look like when you first met? I've drawn up a list of characteristics. It's like a checklist and it's a form of pattern recognition. In terms of machine learning, I had a training set of all the Teal Fellowship applications, the interviews, and then the selections, and then all the people I've met over time. So in some sense, there is tacit knowledge, unconscious intelligence, forms my judgment in a way where sometimes I try to deconstruct it and look at these traits and so on. But I know it's not like a one-to-one -one match where there must be more to the judgment than what I can write down and articulate. Vitalik, for instance, when I was talking to him, he was 19. God, I, I looked it up. It's pretty wild. It's like I had lunch with Vitalik five days after he wrote the original Ethereum white paper. And he, I remember, was talking about mathematics, game theory, cryptography, and so on. With It sounded like I was talking to an industry veteran who had been in, in the field for 20 years. So there was always something special about his mind. He, I also saw him communicating in Mandarin with some Ethereum developers. And I asked him, how did he know Mandarin? And he told me he just taught himself. It was clear that he had a special mind. I think he had to learn a lot about leadership. Part of it in the early days before the launch, what I remember talking to him most about was like just these, the human factor of the original Ethereum team and the way there were some factions that broke down and people wanted to take it different ways. And I think that was a steep learning curve for Vitalik because he had been used to the world of numbers but not the world of individuals with their own ambitions and their own biases and so on. And I think that was difficult, but he made it through. And I think he's become a great leader for Ethereum. I think it's something that weighs on him in particular. You can tell he, he almost envies Satoshi for disappearing, but I think he's been doing a great job. I think I just trusted that if this guy was capable of learning Mandarin on his own, he was going to be capable of learning how to manage projects. But again, it's always hard to know what that translates into if I like a list of principles or characteristics to look for. And what would you say to young people that are either in college or in high school and are thinking of dropping out and doing something? Number one, uh, take your education into your own hands. Like we were describing in our own experience, don't wait for your coursework or some degree program to tell you what to study or what to learn. Um, the next thing is that I wish there was a list of unsolved problems in every field. And I wish this was public. See, if you walked into the Department of Physics, there should be a list of the top 10 unsolved problems in physics right now. 
And what that would do is, one, it would show the humility of the veterans, of the people who have been around. It's, hey, yeah, I've been studying this subject for 20 years, and I still don't know the answer to these big questions. It might inspire the next generation that you don't have to wait to take all these required courses before you attack one of these unsolved problems. You could say to yourself, like, wow, we don't understand how to make an energy-efficient containment system for plasma, or we don't understand the nature of prime numbers and why they are the way they are. And if you knew that, maybe you could just dive in right away. You don't have to study these other things. You could just go and attack that problem and start learning about it and get out there faster. So I think for that next generation, I just wish people would yeah, get out there, attack those unsolved problems. There are so many Nobel Prizes that are going to be won by people. Who, it's like it's closer than you think. Anything you'd like to talk about when it comes uh, to your well, forthcoming you book? Where I think the book is different from just a discussion like this is that I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to tell behind the scenes account of two people who started this crazy VC fund. And I think our story is entertaining. If you enjoy a good nonfiction narrative. Uh, that touches on bigger themes, how to reform higher ed or do something differently. I think you'll enjoy the book, you know, Paper Belt on Fire. The Paper Belt of Buddy Mind Biology, we've talked about the network state years ago. We were joking in conversation. He called the Paper Belt this area from Washington, D.C. to Boston, where every industry seems to be based on paper. They print money on paper, regulations on paper in D.C. In New York, they print media on paper, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and then in Boston, Harvard and MIT print diplomas on paper. And so I had on my LinkedIn, I'm dedicated to lighting the paper belt on fire. And my editor was like, wow, that's interesting. He went with that for the title. So yeah, if you like a good story and then some of these topics we talked about, I think you'll enjoy the book. If you're just wondering what you should do with your career, I'm always happy to continue that conversation. So reach out to us at 1517fund.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at William Blake, the poet. I <laughs> When I was a journalist, I... Twitter was launched. I was like, what is this thing? It looks like haiku. So I, I took the poet's name and I kept it because Michael Gibson is just taken and, and everywhere. So that's my Twitter handle. Find me. Always happy to have a conversation. Great. And last question. What gives you inspiration? I, I the brilliant, creative people I meet who are so capable of solving a lot of these problems. It's just, I just think we need to free them up to, to attack these problems and save us old timers. And to anyone hearing this, we're looking for you. So if you want to learn more about some of the things that Michael and I discussed about charter cities, please come join us on Prospera. I'm organizing three conferences for three different industries that we want to disrupt, right? And bring change makers and innovators to figure out ways to do that. The first one is about healthcare, September 23 to 25. The second one, education, October 28 to 30. And the third one is crypto fintech, on November 18 to 20. Go on infinitafund.com to find links to the events. That's infinity, just with an A, and fund.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.